Welcome to the 800th episode of The Richard Krause Show. 800 episodes, 800 episodes. I can't believe it's been 800 episodes. I can't even really begin to wrap my head around what that means, how many people I've spoken to, how long it takes to do 800 episodes. There is someone here, though, that can help. That's my smart speaker, Slinky. Hey, Slinky, tell me all about The Richard Krause Show. The Richard Krause Show is a long-running radio talk show celebrating 800 episodes, minus commercials, that breaks down to 36,000 minutes or 216,000 seconds of audio magic. Audio magic? I like that. You're welcome. I'm your biggest fan. Really? I'm flattered. You really are a smart speaker. Thank you very much. Today on the show, we're getting nostalgic. I'll have a look back at my favorite moments from 216,000 seconds and 800 episodes of my show. We'll hear from EDM superstar Moby on what it was like to live next door to someone he calls the greatest musician to ever live. Show business legend Ann-Margaret tells us how she got the nickname Slugger. Hugh Jackman talks about how he overcame his fears on stage and off. Jodie Foster tells me about how she chooses the movies she wants to make and much, much, much more. Some of these interviews were done in studio. Many of them were done in hotel rooms in lots of different cities. And at least one of them was done in the back of a cab. The thing that binds them all together is great conversation and hopefully some insight into the lives of the people you know from television, movies, music, or literature. That sounds like a great show. Okay, Slinky, I'm turning you off now. I'll miss you. Let's get things started by turning the dial back to 2013 and my conversation with Guns N' Roses guitarist, Slash. Looking back at this, I remember two things about the interview from before we turned on the microphones. First was shaking his hand. It was like shaking hands with the Hulk. His hands weren't big and green, of course, but they were powerful. So I guess playing guitar every day helps build up these superhero hand muscles. Then I remember he took a moment to call his daughter who was on her way to her first day of school in Los Angeles. She was nervous, probably afraid of a bully in her class, and I got to hear Slash, the father, not the rock star, encourage his daughter to be strong and not to be afraid. It was a great moment that really showed off a different side, something that we don't normally get to see from him, and that's what I love when I meet these really super famous people. It's really illuminating. After seeing him parent his child, we talked about music and how his parents gave him a love of horror movies. My parents were big horror fans. So they, 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 uh, my dad turned me on to a lot of literature when I was really, really young. He, he, he gave me, you know, he turned me on to Ray Bradbury and Edgar Allan Poe and, you know, that kind of thing. And I remember one of the coolest things that he did was he gave me a box of the War of the World tapes. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Orson, Orson Welles, Welles yeah. uh, narration. You know, and that's what's, and he told me the whole thing about it. And my dad was uh, very well read British, and he, he's very uh, uh, well read, you know, right. that's the best way to put it. And he he had a great way of sort of delivering these stories to me and getting me into it. And then my mom turned me on to all the 
classic horror movies from the 30s and the 50s and the you know and I was born in the 60s so yeah. everything that was currently going on from that point on I went with her to to go see and that kind of thing but the hammer movies in England I remember very well the sort of B movies that uh all these crazy well, they had the Monster best posters. Stories. Oh, yeah. They had the yeah. best posters, Hammer films. They were really, I don't know, lurid, I guess, mm -hmm. is the only way you could use to describe them, right? The blood was, like, redder than <laughs> yeah. any other red blood you'd seen anywhere. Yeah, I remember being a huge Oliver Reed fan. Yeah. And then, of course, Vincent Price and that whole list of great uh, British horror actors. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, so, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, like, I, I have two kids, and... And and one of them just has a natural affinity for horror, and one of them doesn't. I was one of those kids that just was like spiders and snakes and ghouls and goblins, and and have never changed. Do you play guitar every day? I desperately. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I play all the time, except for right now because I didn't bring a guitar to Toronto with yeah. me. But uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm I'm somebody who is constantly uh, writing and and. Carries my guitar around with me all over the place. Does the day feel incomplete unless you play guitar? Yeah, you know, when I get home from this little this little quick trip, I'll be desperate to get on my guitar and all the stuff that's going on in my head. Apply it to the instrument, so I make sure I don't forget it. You know. And and is there are there hundreds of hours of tape sitting around just waiting to be released someday? No, it's not. Everything that I'm working on gets released you know thereafter pretty quickly yeah. i don't like to have stuff there is there is uh, a fair share of music that i haven't done anything with probably just because it wasn't good enough or, or yeah. anything that is like is there uh french madrigal music or something like that that would surprise <laughs> us you know sitting yeah, around there no it's at the record store it's just under a different name <laughs> 800 episodes 800 episodes richard krauss it's jan arden and i am here to wish you and congratulate you on frickin' 800 shows. 800 hours of brilliance, shining wisdom, hilarity, common sense. Well, maybe not common sense. Listen, Richard, I wish you another 16,000 hours of chat and encouragement and entertainment you are just a fantastic guy i love you and i hope you just keep kicking ass right back at you jan arden you're listening to the 800th episode of the richard kraus show now i enjoy talking about movies and music with my guests but i love to dig a little deeper than simply talking about the thing that they're there to promote a good example of that is my 2011 interview with Hollywood legend and two-time Oscar winner Jodie Foster. She's been in the public eye for so long that her mother once told her that by the time she was 17, her career would be over, that she should probably find something else to do. And then she told her that again when Jodie was 40 years old, and now at age 60, she's still going strong as a director, writer, and actor. In this part of our conversation, she describes the freedom she feels as a director making offbeat films like The Beaver, a psychological drama about a man who uses a beaver hand puppet to communicate with people and overcome his issues. I did have a different career as an actor. I was in mainstream movies or, you know, they're, they're the business of worrying about whether how many screens it's released on how many people go see it as you know that that was a part of my career as an actor well, you you said that and i just want to sort of interrupt but you said that last night too you said i had i had you said you, you talk about that part of your career as though it's in the past tense which i i don't feel but uh 
Well, you know, I, yeah, I probably do, I guess, because, you know, my mom always said, uh, well, first she said to me, by the time you're 17, your career will be over. So what do you want to be? Are you going to be a doctor? Are you going to be a lawyer? You know? And I thought, oh, boy, I guess I better do something. I better yeah. study. And uh, when that didn't happen, then she said, you know, by the time you're 40, your career will be over. Right. And uh, because all actresses' careers end at 40. And um, so I kept waiting for that. And then it was 42 <laughs> and 43 and 44. And But there is a part of me um, that, you know, in some ways, the th- the things that I had to prove uh, as a young actor coming up, I don't really have to prove anymore. And uh, I've, I have managed, you know, it's fantastic. I've managed to release a lot of movies uh, that have made way over a hundred million dollars. And uh, I've, I've hit all these uh, particular milestones. I've got a couple of Academy Awards and I don't want to just do what I already did anymore. Uh, now I'm really interested. Um, one of the things that really keeps me acting is to make movies with amazing directors and look behind their, shoulders and say, why did he do that? And why did he choose that? And so I just don't have the same goals as an actor as I did before, but I was, I was, I don't know that I will continue to be, but I was a mainstream A-list actor. And that is a very particular thing. It's a a whole life. And um, that is not what I want to be as a director. Uh, I don't need to be the director that comes out with those movies, the CGI movies, and that gets offered the next Harry Potter. And uh, I really want to be somebody who makes personal films that have a strong signature, and I don't need to make them for tons of money. It's funny, I, uh, David Cronenberg was offered uh, Flashdance right after he'd made something, I can't remember, well, you know, The Dead Zone or something, it was a big hit. And I said to him one time, what kind of movie would that have been? What, what would Flashdance have been if you had directed? And he said it would have been a huge flop. That's what it would have been, yeah. a giant failure, because he's just wired differently in that way. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, just as you are well cast for certain roles, um, you know, you're well cast as a director for certain roles. The, 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 what a director has to do is wake up at three in the morning and say, I've got an idea. And... I don't know how you do that in a movie, a buddy cop movie about Martians. I really don't. I have, when somebody says, should he wear blue or should he wear green? I'd say, I don't care. (laughs) Put him in whatever you want. Um, How should he be shot? I'm like, I don't know. You know, I don't have any ideas unless I'm inspired. And um, unless I have an emotional connection to the material, I know my limitations. I, I know that as a director, that's what I bring to the table. I bring a certain kind of truth to the table. And so, no, I don't really have any interest in doing, um, uh, big event release uh, CGI movies. And I, the good news is I don't really have to because yeah. I have another identity as an actor. Right. Well, you're Jodie Foster. <laughs> <laughs> Recently, I spoke with Malcolm McDowell, star of everything from A Clockwork Orange to the CBC television hit Son of a Critch. We talked about acting, among other things, and the one thing that all actors must face. It is a career of rejection. Mm. If you can't take rejection, don't be an actor, you know. And that's okay because, uh, listen, I always tell young actors, if they go, you know what, we prefer the other one, you can say to yourself, that's fine, your loss, and walk out. That's it. End of story. That's how you get through. There's always a list, and very rarely are you number one on that list. Um, which is fine, too, because sometimes it'll come, you know, out of left field, something will happen and uh, and you'll kill it. And they go, my God, we can't think of anybody else now. Then that's, you know, that's just the way it is. That was Malcolm McDowell on Life as an Actor. You know, I thought he'd be scary, intense, like the characters that he often plays. But then I met him. And here's a secret. He's a sweetheart. He's nothing like Alex DeLarge or anything that you've ever seen him play on screen. 
Here's Hugh Jackman and the story about his life in which he said, and here's that compliment, I don't think I've ever told anyone this before. I'll be honest, when I came out of drama school, I was like, I'm going to do anything I can, man, just to keep working. And look, you're in Australia, maybe similar here, but probably not because of the proximity to America. But in Australia, they probably make, at best, 15 movies a year. You cannot... If you do one, if you do two a year, you're like the biggest working actor in Australia. Right. And the budgets are probably small. Of course, there's okay. no living to be made, yeah. really. You cannot say, I'm going to be a film actor. I'm not doing TV. Yeah. I'm not going to do theatre or this or that. You've got to do everything. Right. Um, and that's... So I kind of... I had a facility to do a number of different things. So I just kept working at all of them as a way to kind of spread the yeah. <laughs> chances of unemployment, yeah, yeah. you know. So... It sort of fell into a strength. It became, I, I didn't really mean it to be that, except that I found a drama school. I was happy and loved that eclecticism and the ability. Like in, in drama school, you do Shakespeare, to movement, to circus skills, to singing all in one morning. Yeah. And I know a lot of people hated it, and, and I've, I reveled in it. I loved it. So... That's sort of, it's weird how it's evolved. Have you always been someone who's just jumped in and said, you know what, if I'm yeah. going to do this, I'm going to be the guy that does, you know. I'm gonna be I've the always guy. been the jump in first guy. Yeah. Uh, there's a number of reasons why. My dad taught me an amazing work ethic. He never took one day off in his life. Now, he had five kids who was bringing up on his own. So, you know, if anyone deserved a day off, it was my old man. <laughs> he never did. He just had that, just keep going, working, yeah. work hard. I mean, old school. Like, if you've got a headache, there was no, like, take a headache tablet. It's yeah. like, well, why have you got a headache? Get to bed early, you know, it's yeah. whatever. Yeah. So I learned that from him. Also, I think as a kid, being the youngest, you're terrified of missing out on things. Like, the whole, your whole life feels like, oh, I'm not allowed to do that. Well, my brothers are doing for another two years, which is an eternity. So I always wanted to do stuff and not be left out. And I was quite a fearful kid. I, which I hated. I was scared of the dark. I was scared of heights. I was. There was a period of time my mum had left. I was always the first one home. I would not even go into the house until someone else came home. So I would sit out on the stoop, right? You know, and I I hated it. So I've always had this fear of fear, and if like a drama school, you know, it's sort of. It's a weird thing to think back now, but it's a pressure kind of situation. People get kicked out of drama school. You're constantly being judged how you're doing. Are you progressing? Are you not? Almost every day, all right, let's get up and do this monologue, sing this song, do it in front of everybody. I noticed I was always first. I never wanted to sit there waiting for... And, and I would see some people, they were like, mm, don't pick me first, don't put my... You know, I want to see five, six other people. And I'm not saying that out of courage. It was more like, I hate this feeling of being... I'm getting up. I'm just going to get up and I'm going to do it, you know. And and so, I remember one of the one of the girls in class said to me after about a year and a half. I remember Jeanette. She said, "You always get up first. Like, you know, why don't you let other people get up?" I says, "Anyone can get up." I said, "I said if you want to get up, you put your hand up. I got no problem." I says, "But I'm not going to wait five seconds." I said, "Because I just want to do stuff." So, and I remember hanging back for a little while. I say, like, "All right." So I'd wait five seconds, I'd count to five in my head. All right, all right, I'm up. That's it. It was it was too uncomfortable to sit yeah. stewing over that. So yeah. anyway, I, I don't think I've told anyone else that. Hey Richard, it's Enrico Colantoni. 
800 episodes. Congratulations on still being relevant. 800 hours of entertainment on entertainment. More episodes than The Simpsons. Imagine how much money you'd have if it were 800 episodes of television. You're one of the greats, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for keeping the film industry honest, for keeping us informed, and for always being thoughtful and respectful of everyone you meet. Congratulations again. Cheers. Thanks, Enrico. That was Enrico Colantoni. You'll soon see him in the movie Humane opposite Jay Baruchel. And of course, his role as Malthazar, the alien who believes the Galaxy Quest TV show is real in the big screen movie Galaxy Quest is a stone cold classic. Check it out if you haven't seen it. Commander. Excuse me. I must speak to you. It is a matter of supreme importance. We are Thermians from the Klaatu Nebula and we need your help. Now let's hear a clip from my interview with Eric McCormack. Now, of course, you know him and love him from his starring roles in shows like Will and Grace and many, many other TV shows and movies. But here he talks about what he learned from his very first play. And that was when he was just in grade one. I was reading uh, about your very early days and your first play from the first grade uh, was The Man (laughs) with the Hats. And what did you learn from that? Because I had heard a number of things uh, that you've sort of taken forward uh, from that particular performance in the first grade. I'd love if someone had come to me when I'm six or seven saying, in 52 years, you'll be asked about this production. I would have said, 52 years? Never lived that long. Um, yeah, that was the first, that was first grade. And uh and it was just a play about a guy who sells hats and he wears them all at the same time on top of his head. And everyone else in the play plays monkeys in the tree and they steal my hats. <laughs> Boiler alert. That's the whole, that's the whole play. Uh, and, but I remember thinking, huh, I'm the title character. I am the man with the hats and everyone else is supporting me. So I, even at six years old, I'm, uh, I'm star tripping a little bit. And then the, the next year there was a play about a kingdom or something. And I thought, sure, I'm going to play the king, but I didn't. And it ended up Bruce Walker played the king and I was the chef. And that's when I discovered uh, upstaging. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did a terrible uh, second grade French accent and, um, and whatever I'd seen Billy Van do on the hilarious house. Right. right. Time, you know? And tell me a little bit about uh, Grade 11. I know this is going back a long way, but I found this really fascinating that in Grade 11, you did a production of Godspell. Um, We're about the same age. And uh, Godspell was for that time kind of, you know, at the center of popular culture. It was a very popular show. Lots of people did it. It's one of the first theater experiences that I had that really made a huge impact on me. But it had a huge impact on you uh, performing in it. And it was, from what I've read, when you said, well, this is it. I want to be an actor now. What was it about? Was it the show? Was it the response? Or was it the work? What was it? Uh, it was a real, as Jim Burroughs would say, a real lightning in a bottle. My, mm. I had a class that involved uh, David Furnish was in my class. Mm. Uh, uh, Damon D'Olivera, who's a great filmmaker, just had a film in the uh, Toronto Film Festival. My friend Helga, who's been in the business for 40 years. Um, it was just an s- amazing little group of people that was were so into it. And and um, it was just, it was very much a coming of age for me. I've always said I... 
I measure my life in, in BC and AD before I played Christ and after I played Christ. <laughs> and it wasn't even the production, which I think lasted two nights. Yeah. It was the assembly. You remember when you used to have to go to assemblies yeah. and they'd do it, your leaders would do something and then the math squad. And, and then it was like, okay, the uh, Godspell is on this Friday and Saturday and the cast of Godspell is going to do a song. Now. And everyone's sitting there, you know, half stoned and wishing it was over. But instead of it being, you know, Annie, get your gun or something, it was this rock beat kicked in and we were all just, and, and I just, when I finished Save the People and th that last note played, all these people that had never accepted me in 11 years of school suddenly were on their feet. And that's when I was like, oh, this is good. I will do this for a living now. 800 episodes, 800. We're celebrating 800 episodes of The Richard Krause Show. Let's jump in on my conversation with one of the architects of modern pop culture. Stan Lee made an indelible mark on popular culture by co-creating some of the most popular characters in comic books. Without him, there'd be no superheroes like Spider-Man, the X-Men, Iron Man, Thor, the Hulk, Black Panther, and the list goes on and on. He is a legend, and I got the chance to speak with him on the phone a couple of years before he passed away in 2018. He was in fine form as you're about to hear and it's a really fun interview and I wanted to share some of it with you. We start with the practical reason behind his unusual habit of using alliteration to name characters like Peter Parker, Bruce Banner, Matt Murdock, and Reed Richards. For decades, we've been, we've grown up with Bruce Banner and Peter Parker and things. How did you come up with the names? Was And I've just noticed that alliteration seems important to you. Very important, and, and it's, why be so? it's because I have a bad memory. <laughs> and if I could remember what one of the names was, like it, it was Spider-Man, if I could remember his first name was Peter, then I knew his second name began with a P, and it was easier for me to think of it. And that's really the only reason. I have a terrible memory for names, and by putting the first and second letter, making them the same, I had a clue. If I thought of one name, I had a clue to what the na next name was. <laughs> also Superheroes have to have a flaw, and I wonder if it's if it's possible for you to say what yours is, and which of your superheroes maybe you you line up with. Wow. Or you could relate to. Well, of course, I think of myself more as Tony Stark because he's glamorous and intelligent and handsome and all that. <laughs> but seriously, um, I think there's a little bit of everybody in all of these characters. I think that's why. They seem to be popular because I tried to give them all hang-ups and some weaknesses, and that none of them are really perfect. So they're just like regular people, I hope. Right. And I have to tell you one thing before you hang up. Okay. I have really enjoyed being interviewed by you. You asked intelligent questions, and best of all, I don't hear very well, and I have often trouble hearing people on the phone with me, but you speak so clearly, I wish you would take a job as my official inquisitor. Well, <laughs> if that job ever comes up, I'm more than happy to fill the void. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. Anyway, good talking to you, and good luck to you. Thank you. 800 episodes, 800 episodes. Hey there, Richard, it's me, Brittlestar. You know, Brittlestar from the internet. 
Anyway, just wanted to pop by to congratulate you on your 800th episode. That's an amazing achievement and one you should be very proud of. A lot of people would have been happy with just like one or two episodes from you, but you powered through. You delivered 800 episodes of pure gold. Here's to 800 more. Congratulations. Thanks for that, Brittle Star. Check out Brittle Star's new book. It's called Welcome to the Stupid Apocalypse Survival Tips for the Dumageddon. It'll be available in September, but you can pre order now wherever you buy fine books. My next guest has a voice that I'm sure that you'll recognize. Whether you grew up watching Batman on television, the original television series, or whether you were a big fan of The Family Guy and his portrayal of Mayor Adam West, you know this very familiar voice. Adam West told me about how being a truck driver helped him play Batman. He talked to me about Batman's defining moments on the television show and why wearing that famous suit was kind of uncomfortable. Here's Adam West. I'm told that the suit was really uncomfortable. It was. Yeah? And, um, and, and what way? Well, it was a time when they didn't have the materials that they have today. Right. And it, it was just plain hot and itchy. <laughs> That's all. And you would have spent about 15 hours a day in the thing. And I kept fainting. It was embarrassing. Right. Now, Oswald, I have to ask you, what, because for me, as a, as a kid watching the show, mm -hmm. uh, it was all about the Batmobile. I loved the Batmobile. Oh, yeah. And yes. you got to drive what was the coolest car on the planet. It so, looked great on film. It, yeah, it looked great on film. I guess by the tone, though, I can maybe sense that it wasn't that easy to drive or it wasn't that great in person. Well, when I was very young, I was a truck driver. Right. And I started when I was about 12 in the fields. And then later on in life, I became a, a race car driver. Right. And then I, and getting behind the wheel of the Batmobile was like driving a broken down old 37 Ford <laughs> wheat truck. <laughs> I got to be honest, but you know what? I didn't mind because it was so tricky and fun and funny and perfect on film right. and the kids loved it i remember seeing the car for the first time and of course i'd never seen anything like it before it's the most famous car in the world yeah. and everybody today that i meet still prefers that car to any other if we look back at uh, all the batman shows the 120 shows and we'll include the movie here is there a defining most memorable batman moment for you well, I said this before, um, there are several wonderful moments, like a defining moment of the character might be when he sat at the disco bar and they slipped him a drug or a Mickey in his orange juice. Yep. So with great abandonment, he stood up and he created the Batusi. <laughs> <laughs> that moment to me kind of summed up everything that it was, uh, that it could be really funny, absurd, fun, and yet serious, and the kids would really take it seriously. The other defining moment probably was when I first put on the costume for real and was about to leave my trailer on the stage and walk out in front of the crew and the press, everyone there, into the light. And I thought, oh, Lord, is everyone, are they going to laugh or what's going to happen here? Well, I walked across the stage 
as dignified as I could. As much like Batman might, there wasn't a sound. People stood there in awe. And I thought, yes, this will work. And why do you think it works? I don't know. I think it's the fact that he, he is a human. Right. He's an earthling who simply um, is on what might be considered almost a psychotic quest, um, that he had a terrible tragedy, and as a result, he trained himself to do something specific, and that is get rid of evil. Right. And we read it growing up. So Batman brings an awful lot of baggage with it. That was Adam West on the 800th episode of The Richard Krause Show. Next up, a movie legend. And movie legends don't get any better than Michael Caine. He's led a life so well lived, he's been able to write three memoirs across several decades, appear in 160 movies, and win every award going, including an Academy Award and a Knighthood. In one of my all-time favorite interviews, I asked him what it was like to be an icon. Yeah, I don't know. I, you, you, I was, they said, well, you're an icon now. I said, well, I don't know how to do that. I said, because there's no, you can't go, there's no lessons, you know, and it, it, there's not a special icon bar where you all go and meet up and ask what you're supposed to do. I said, hey, you call me an icon. Now I don't know what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> so it, it, do you just consider yourself uh, a, a working actor? I consider myself lucky. Lucky. And I consider myself lucky that I got to chat with Sir Michael Caine. Let's have a listen to my conversation with the legendary actor Ben Kingsley. The day before we spoke, I saw him on a red carpet outside a theater where his latest movie was premiering. He signed a bunch of autographs for some fans, and one woman in particular was very excited. I mean, beyond excited to meet him. I told him that story and asked a simple question. How does that make you feel, that sort I, of reaction? It doesn't. It doesn't. The, the, the important thing for me is to tell the story. I am, I'm sure I'm a storyteller. Um, I'm sure that's the right place for my DNA to be. Right. And uh, if it means that she's heard the story and it touched her, then I'm delighted. Right. Right. Um, there, there, there's, a, there's a story something happened to me and it stayed with me forever and it was a beautiful thing that happened I had the privilege of playing Hamlet which um, Michael Attenborough saw and then told his dad dad if you ever get the money I've seen the guy who should play Gandhi so I was playing Hamlet for the Royal Shakespeare Company and I was walking um, he was always in my head it's a very all consuming role I was walking across Snitterfield, where he himself used to walk. It's an open field uh, just outside of Stratford-upon-Avon, which you may know. You may know the town. Beautiful town. And a lovely young woman was at the opposite side of the field, seemed to be walking towards me. So I decided to tack to my right Right. to avoid her feeling that I was intruding on her space. She tacked to her left. In other words, she mirrored me. And then I went the other way, and she mirrored me. So she was determined to meet me in the middle of this field. And 
face I can see, still see her face face to face she said I saw Hamlet last night how did you know about me that's interesting it's never left me yeah so I, something must have gone right in there right. through the sternum and said I know yeah. well that is the connection that's that, the connection that's the connection that when it works that the audience makes or the, the actors make with the audience and that's why I think that young woman yesterday was beyond herself mm. it was so interesting to see I love seeing it I love that kind of enthusiasm as someone so, who covers a film festival as someone who is you know we've all seen this jaded thing it's day eight and we've been seeing 500 movies I love the enthusiasm mm, so do I I love it very much and if it means that through storytelling Something has been shifted, healed, touched in her. Great. Good. Hi, it's Amy Jo Johnson. Congratulations, Richard, on your 800th episode. I've always enjoyed coming on your show. You are the best. Thanks, Amy Jo. From playing the Pink Ranger in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and Julie on Felicity to directing movies like Tammy's Always Dying starring Felicity Huffman, Amy Jo's been on the show many times. Next up, Golden Globe, Grammy Award, and Emmy Award winner Anne Margaret. She's had so much success during her 60-year career, it's hard to imagine the hardships that she's gone through. In this clip from my interview with her, we talk about a devastating accident in 1972 when she was seriously injured in a fall from a 22-foot-high stage platform and had to undergo facial surgery at the UCLA Medical Center. Because of that accident and others, friends came up with a special nickname for her. Years ago, your friends nicknamed you Slugger. Yes. And who gave you the nickname and why did they give it to you? Well, one of my friends gave it to me because um, I get knocked down so many times and I have, you know, accidents in my life and I keep getting up. So they call me Slugger and one of my friends gave me this gold, for a pin, a, this gold pair of boxing gloves. <laughs> <laughs> that I deserve. I earned it. <laughs> um, I can't believe I'm still here. I know. Well, you are. And, and I am. I'm that I'm alive after <laughs> all these things that have happened. Well, the fall off the stage in Las Vegas. I didn't mean that. I, I didn't mean to fall. I know. I know. Who would do that to themselves? <laughs> no, it was in Lake in Lake Tahoe. Oh, in Lake Tahoe. Lake Tahoe. Lake Tahoe. Yeah. And and uh, I mean, but was it twenty-two feet? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, sir. I imagine in a situation like that, you're on stage and then you wake up in a in a hospital room. That must be what it was like. Do you have any memory of it at all? I remember we did two performances a night. Right. That particular night. We did the dinner, and then we were just going into the midnight one, and I arrived via 22 feet up on a platform that they hadn't told us that if it leaned over more than six inches, then it would flip, and I'd be thrown. It just flipped, and there I went. And is that's that, what they told me. That's what they tell you, and that must be when that slugger attitude comes in. Oh, boy. 
I just knew I woke up. I woke up and I couldn't move because they had put my teeth together. So they they didn't show me a mirror. And I I knew, oh boy, something must be really wrong. You won't show me a mirror. (laughs) Hi, I'm Mark Critch. If you watch my TV show, Son of a Critch, you know I grew up next to a radio station. Well, there's no better voice in radio than Richard Krause. Congratulations on 800 episodes of The Richard Krause Show, the best in the biz. Thanks a lot, Mark. Check out Mark Critch's show, Son of a Critch. It's a very funny show, and it might even bring a tear to your eye from time to time. In the last 800 shows, I've interviewed more actors, writers, magicians, photographers, Elvis impersonators, rock stars, and directors than I could possibly ever count. I've even interviewed a puppet, or I guess make that a Muppet. Temperamental diva superstar Miss Piggy joined me to talk about getting starstruck. You've been a star of stage and screen and, you know, the big screen uh, for so long. And And, now radio! and, And, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So you, you, you've conquered all mediums. Uh, do you ever get starstruck? No, I never get starstruck. Sometimes stars get struck by me, <laughs> especially if they get between moi and the camera. Mm. But uh, no, 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 not really. Miss Piggy may be the only guest I've ever had on who called King Charles, King Charlesy Warlesy to his face and didn't end up in the Tower of London. Well, that's it for my celebration of 800 shows. I hope you've enjoyed getting nostalgic with me. There was so much more I wanted to share with you, but the secret of a good party is knowing when to leave. So we'll call it quits for today, but maybe we'll revisit some of that material another time. Thanks to all my guests over the last 800 shows. Next week, we start the countdown to number 900. As always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>